I want to say something about being invited um, by the People's Forum. Um, and I was sort of reluctant because I'm comfortable in my little situation in Washington. Uh, my metaphor is sitting on my front porch and back porch and playing around in my garden and, 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 and um, hanging out with my homegirl for the uh, last 54 years, 50 years of marriage. So when I was invited to do this, I, one of the first things I said, I think Manolo will remember, this cannot be about me. Uh, then I thought, why are they inviting me and all these nice things they say about me? So I recognize in part it's about me. I brought up the Du Bois quote. I brought up the term New World Coming. But in the process of these interviews, a lot has happened positively to me. I don't do the editing. The People's Forum does the editing. This generation of young adult activists who are young enough to be my grandchildren, I learn what they are interested in. I learn how they analyze because they go through these interviews that I've been involved in. And I have grown in that, that, that process. Um, I say this not just in terms of the People's Forum, but whoever might see this interview, you have to look at this generation of young adults see how they are engaging the world. Um, you have to look at groups like Black Lives Matter uh, and all of its amorphous expressions. They're the ones who are engaged in moving society. People of my generation can make contributions by being very honest and straightforward, but also being very humble and respectful for the decisions that this generation has to make. There's a new world coming. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a new world coming, to a new world coming, to a new world coming. Hi there. Welcome to the 10th and final episode of New World Coming, a series of interviews brought to you by the People's Forum. For this installment, we've switched seats with James Early as he becomes the subject of our final interview. His two interviewers are our very own Claudia de la Cruz and Manolo de los Santos, co-executive directors of the People's Forum. For those of you who may not be familiar with us yet, the People's Forum is a popular and political education center and cultural hub here in New York City, dedicated to developing the next generation of leaders and visionaries and uniting working people's movements here in the US and internationally. In this episode, James discusses his path of developing political consciousness and the different historical currents that shaped his life, his analysis, and his worldview. He discusses being greatly activated by the process of the Cuban Revolution and other revolutionary struggles in Latin America, forcing him to grapple with and explore what he calls the messiness of governance. From his many years of involvement in various revolutionary projects and movements, James offers this generation of organizers his perspective on the complex social manifestations of class oppression. Lastly, Claudia and Manolo discuss with James the conversations that conceived the New World Coming series, along with the historical legacy of Black revolutionary leaders that New World Coming draws from. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see more educational and cultural content, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay updated on future programming. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this interview. A conversation started a few months ago among friends and comrades about how to address 
urgent and burning issues of our movement, urgent tasks around political education, and how do we continue to not pass, but together hold the torch of revolutionary struggle among generations that have much to learn from each other. That conversation has led to a new world coming. And today we are happy and in a way, sadly reminiscing already over what this road has been. We're joined by James Early, our dear friend and comrade, and also by Claudia La Cruz, co-director of the People's Forum, to engage not in a final conversation, but definitely in a conversation that helps to summarize both our experiences in this project, but also an open a new door of friendship and dialogue with our comrade, James. James, you have been a historical figure in many sense. Historical because your work, your practice embodies different phases of the, both the working class struggle, but also the black struggle in the United States. You come from the South country. You grew up in a world in which there were prominent black intellectuals posing deep questions, both of what was happening inside the United States, but also internationally. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing in this political intellectual world that in many ways has changed in the past few decades. Well, I'm raised by, um, a mother with a younger brother from the time I'm maybe four or five years old, um, small town in Florida, um, during the days of racial segregation of legal racial segregation. And at six years of age, she brings my brother and I from this little small town of perhaps a couple of thousand people, Ben Allen, Florida to Tallahassee, Florida to Florida and M university. I'm not conscious of the milieu in which I'm being set. I go to an elementary school, which is a part of the university and a high school, which is a part of the university, but I'm tethered, uh, to this almost feudal background because every vacation, uh, my little tiny mother at four foot nine, 99 pounds had to get rid of these rambunctious boys and she sent them back down to her, her mother. So my late brother and I used to say the most fortunate thing that happened to us is that the dust was never educated off of us. Mm -hmm. It's a metaphor for our connection to the rural South, uh, even though we were in the capital city on a university campus, uh, we were very conscious of that connection. And so as we moved out into the cosmopolitan world of education, Morehouse College in Atlanta, um, I'm set of post-civil rights, although I'm the same age as the people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I was on a college campus, so I was not involved in that mighty struggle against um, U.S. apartheid terrorism that ordinary African-Americans were involved in. Many of them intellectuals, college, university-trained people, most of them ministers uh, to the black masses, if you will. But all those things begin to shape my consciousness. And, um, there is a connection to new world coming. Um, I met Bernice Johnson Reagan, um, this extraordinary singer coming out of the civil rights movement from the black belt, Albany, Georgia. Um, someone we marveled at, um, she's about five years, four or five years older than I am. 
but because of her civil rights activity and raising her two children, um, she, we were at the same time at, in college. She came to Spelman College. I was at Morehouse. She saw something in me and I learned something, um, always to be observant of who's around you. Um, you never know who's looking at you and for what reasons they're looking at you. And you may not be very conscious. Well, I was not very conscious of what she saw in me. But she's the one who wrote the song, New World Coming. There are various titles, songs entitled New World Coming. But this one was as a result of the Vietnamese struggle in which she says, I have been watching that struggle. I cannot tell the Vietnamese what to do. But America, pay attention your time is coming. And she's really chronicling uh, and through song and analysis. So these are things that shape my, my background. Vincent Harding, uh, who wrote the Vietnam speech for Dr. King, heard I needed a job after I was thrown out of Morehouse. We took over the administration building. Um, saw something in me that I didn't recognize. I had an anti-establishment kind of perspective, but it was not a formal ideological perspective. I had no religious background. I met Harry Haywood, the communist, so I didn't know he was the black Bolshevik. Um, but I was intrigued that he was a communist because that was such an anti-establishment kind of terminology. What it meant, I didn't really know. But my then girlfriend, now my wife of 50 years, and I spent a lot of time with him as he cooked and sang songs to us and asked us questions about what was going on with my generation. But tell us a little bit more because you've mentioned two intellectual and political giants within the black freedom struggle. I would say in different poles and different currents of that larger black freedom struggle, but definitely two heavyweights, Vincent Harding, Harry Haywood. Tell us more about the impact, the influence of their thinking, their praxis, and what has become your own praxis. Well, I have to couple Vincent Harding and Bernice Regan together because they shared a house, she and her two children upstairs, as I recall, Vincent and his wife and two children downstairs, and it was an open stairwell. Uh, and so as I met Bernice Regan, I also then met Vincent Harding. Uh, Vincent Harding heard after um, I was thrown out of Morehouse um, that I needed a job and sent a message saying he had a job for me at the Martin Luther King Documentation Project, which later became the King Center. He had made a, a pact with Mrs. King that he would run that center, but he, he needed the latitude to open up the Institute of the Black World, where then there were tons of intellectuals who came. C.L.R. James, Walter Rodney, uh, Arna Bontop, um, any number of activists. Um, Vincent was a black Mennonite. Uh, a militant pacifist, I would describe him, uh, a mystic in many ways. Um, I never could figure out what he saw in me, but he saw something. He sent me to graduate school, sent me to the Ford Foundation. They gave me a five-year fellowship. Sent me to the Southern Education Foundation Fellowship to pay for my salary to come from the King Center to ostensibly work with him for a year at Institute of the Black World. He called me one day, says, uh, tomorrow I want you to go to lunch with me. We are meeting Amamu and Mary Baraka uh, when they came down to Atlanta and black boots marching down Hunter Street. Um, but again, I was an individual, and I emphasize this for your generation of more conscious activists, more conscious than I was at your age group, uh, that you 
never know what the pathway might be. Uh, but I was being formed. And um, with Harry Hayward, as I began to read um, about Harry and to listen to him, uh, I became more conscious of the role that communists played, who he was as a working class man, talking to me about working in restaurants with the upper class in Chicago. He's serving these people. But here's a guy who met Lenin, who wrote in Russian, married a Russian woman, uh, brought back the from the 1928 commentary. And I learned all of these things later. But in process of him working on Black Bolshevik, he left uh, the Institute of Black World, went back to Chicago. When I would go to see my in-laws in Chicago, I would go and pick him up in Hyde Park, take him to dinner. And when Black Bolshevik came out, uh, by this time, I have left graduate school. I've dropped out of graduate school at Howard. I'm working at Howard University. I bring him to the Institute of Arts and Humanities at Howard University. And lo and behold, all of these black communists come out from all around Washington, Maryland, the Mitchell family, the newspaper family, all of these people who had been around the Communist Party. And I become more conscious and more forthright of who I think I am becoming. Um, and then through the Puerto Rican movement, I meet Erwin Silver, Arthur Kanoi, Fran Beale. I don't know who these people are. Um, Which is leading us to, I guess, an interesting phase of your life. Or not a phase, but a new step in your life, which is you describe yourself as not necessarily being of the civil rights movement, even though you're a black Southern man, studied at Morehouse, a hotbed of radical politics in the South. You're getting closer to Marxist politics. You then begin a process where you meet people. You mentioned Erwin Silver, others. There's the whole development of a new communist movement in the right. United States in this right. period, which is a way of a mature phase of what the new left had already begun in the 1960s. What is your process then of becoming part of line of march being an active part of rethinking the role of the communist movement inside the united states i was a young person trying to find my way you know having come out of this background um rural background um a mother raising two sons i'm around the children of deans and professors in my elementary school and in my high school that's a associated with Florida A&M University. I was always a little uneasy, you know, who, who, who am I? Where am I going in this process? I think it's still very much a characteristic of my sense of self. So when I come into these movements, I mean, I, I've grown up in an intellectual milieu. I loved reading. Um, I realized that the questions are not being answered about oppression in the context of the civil rights movement. I did not think very highly of Dr. King. Uh, when I was that age, it took me a time to understand what a revolutionary uh, he was and how conscious he was of the context in which he fit. Um, so I was not on a straight line path. You know, the new communist movement significantly characterized by Maoism. I can't even define Maoism for you today. People said, oh, you're a Maoist. I, I, is that what I'm supposed to be? If you would talk to my... Uh, then comrades and still comrades and close friends from the line of March, they would say, well, you know, 
you could say things to James, but he always found his own way. Um, and so there is that individualism, that search, not intended to be arrogant or aloof, um, but I sort of found my own path. And um, it's perplexing, a little confusing. Some people think, oh, he's an intellectual. Well, I'm a PhD dropout. Some people think, oh, he's a museologist. Yes, I worked at the Smithsonian Institution for 32 years. I actually ran um, a museum for a couple of years there in that complex. But I'm an eclectic. Uh, that's, and I'm still very much an eclectic. The Cuban Revolution caught my imagination from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's office in Atlanta. Uh, they were on the decline then. Uh, but these contrarian uh, young people, we would go there at night, um, and there were these posters from Tricontinental up on the wall. I picked up a book because my undergraduate work was in Spanish called Pensamiento Critico. It was the second edition to Fernando Martinez Heredia. Uh, I read an article about internal and secondary contra external contradictions. So an eclecticism, you know, led me along that path. And in the new communist movement, um, I never really identified with or against Maoism. Uh, the Sino-Soviet split, I understood it intellectually, but I was never passionately grounded in one position or another, which became a big issue of the first uh, International Conference on the Independence of Puerto Rico in Havana, where I made my first trip to Havana, that blew up as a, a big issue. There was something about the way that I carried myself that my comrades basically respected me in that. Erwin Silver and I became very, very close. I like to joke that because uh, we were both pretty arrogant. And I think I probably uh, unsuspectingly said, wow, you know, this he's a very smart guy, but a very aggressive guy. Arthur Kanoi, on the other hand, was a very bowel-mannered guy who I didn't realize had came out of the Communist Party as well, one of the, perhaps the principal founder of the Center for Constitutional Rights. So my eclecticism is sort of run through all of that. And of course, the Cuban, imagine, and the Cuban Revolution caught the imagination of my generation. Um, like people across Latin America, uh, across the Americas, across the world, these bearded romantic looking figures, you know, larger than life with cigars. But as I settled in, my generation uh, began to study African languages at places like Howard University. I had this background in Spanish, so I looked for Africa and Latin America. And because of my sort of contrarian beliefs have now matured, you know, the Cuban revolution then comes up as the most cogent ideological organizational expression of that. And I get very much tied to Cuba and Cuba becomes um, a fundamental aspect of my life up until my now almost 76 years of age. I mean, you say eclectic, you share the word arrogance, individualism. Mm -hmm. What level of truth there is to that will be determined later in history. Perhaps. But there's an interesting element of your character and your political work and your intervention in multiple spaces. I mean, I have bumped into you on the shores of Ghana and in the shores of Havana. In this constant, I wouldn't say just dialogue, because it's actually more than a dialogue. It's been sort of a constant and consistent push 
for how internationalism is articulated also in the lens of black people struggling for their freedom across this continent. A diasporic struggle. Often you are the uncomfortable person who stands up in the room and says, why are we not talking about this factor and the other? That often gets confused for arrogance. But tell us about that journey, because I think it's, it's a big part of your story and your work to this day, that you have been an articulator, a connector of sorts of Pan-Africanist, Black Renaissance, Black nationalists, Black revolutionary groups across the continent. I've been in that process. You know, you mentioned names, um, you know, Chavez and I just spontaneously he always called me Jimmy. I mean, the first time he met me, I think nobody calls me Jimmy except people I grew up with in Tallahassee, yeah. Florida. And um, Chavez had, you know, he was an, he may be the most extraordinary intellectual that I ever met. You know, I spent time with Fidel Castro at his home and um, I hope one day the, that film will be revealed about our discussion about um, democracy and about race. Uh, which Harry Belafonte has some place in his archives. Uh, perhaps Roberto Chile will have a copy of that because he and Saul Landau filmed this engagement of several of us sitting in Fidel's living room. And I asked myself, damn, James, you're sitting here with Fidel Castro, or perhaps the greatest humanist of the 20th century. I don't think of him as a theorist. I don't even think of Fidel in terms of Marxism. I mean, he's not opposed to Marx or Lenin, but I just thought he was a a great figure of common humanity and decency. But beyond these figures, you definitely have moved consistently with a conversation around where you term democracy and race. Yes. Define that for us. Well, I'm very conscious being um, an African-American um, in the heart of capitalist um, imperialism by any empirical data. One does not have to be a great theorists um, to follow uh, the super exploitation of um, black people, the rape of women, the breeding of, of enslaved African women to produce. Um, and I'm fortunate because of this tie of going back to my rural background that the constructs in the academy, be it elementary or, uh, or um, high school or college, did not take me away from that reality. So I'm very conscious that when I am someplace dealing with these Marxist-Leninists, um, if how they are dealing with black people. I'm from the United States of America. Wait, you said these Marxist-Leninists. Are you not a Marxist-Leninist? I am a Marxist-Leninist, but those Marxist-Leninists who, <laughs> who see class as the only optic, uh, th that don't talk about the sociology of class. Class has always had a sociology, starting with men and women actually starting with men and women and gay people, we just did not recognize the gay people. We, uh, that de 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 democratic issue had not really emerged in the public discourse. I, you know, I'm, I have the thesis that if you believe the stork brought us, the stork brought all of those expressions up. You believe we climbed down from the trees with the apes. Uh, these uh, gendered expressions have always been there. And the hegemony, the power of hegemony of dominant narratives have just excluded that. So when I talk about those Marxist-Leninists, 
I'm talking about those Marxist Leninists who use class uh, as an abstract category and don't see the cross-class nature of racism, uh, the cross-class basis of sexism. Uh, if you are blue-eyed, blonde, uh, married to top industrial capitalists of the early part of the 20th century or the latter part of the 19th century, you might have been better off than everybody else, but you were not better off than the men. So when I'm dealing with Marxist-Leninists, and they're not talking about the issue of race in their own societies, when black labor and slave labor is the labor where super accumulation came from. And that's why you have these extraordinary dehumanizing narratives uh, about black people and at writ large people of, of color. I mean, Karl Marx talked about it, you know, the English working class was being exploited, but not as much as the super exploited indigenous and black people here in the Americas where capitalism really matures and flowers as a global economy, the new world. I mean, that metaphor obscures uh, globalized capital and, global, and globalized uh, uh, labor at that time. You know, W. E. Du Bois and others understood that to sell the black folk that narrative that people think is only about these feudal oppressed black people. And But in his introduction, he's saying, and all of the people of the Mediterranean Sea, he's looking at He's looking at Indonesia. He's looking at 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 uh, at Asia, uh, and and so as a, I'm very conscious of being a black person in that context. When I started going to Cuba, I've experienced racism in socialist Cuba. It did not stop me from being a supporter of socialist Cuba. Um, I sat with um, um, help me here with his name, head of the army, came with Fidel from Mexico. Um, I sat before Juan Almeida with two of the African-Americans and Fernando Biesela, who was uh, at the embassy in Washington, who invited us. And I published this and I didn't mean to be, be, for it to be disrespectful. Juan Almeida said to me, there is no such thing as an Afro-Cubano. Well, after three hours of persisting, he turns to, as we would say in black America, the jet black sister of the communist party who's there doing the translation, I'm doing my Spanglish with him. He says, and if you want them to see a black Cuban, take her. And I think the contradiction. Now he, a revolutionary, a true revolutionary, a man of art and culture. But this is where these hegemonistic narratives about the abstraction of class and that race is uh, a divisive matter. Chavez got it. <laughs> and then he says, I'm a mestizo of Spanish and indigenous background, but my grandmother was black. And then two months later, three months later, here at the UN on National Public Radio, some interview, he's saying, you see these big lips, you see this curly hair, that's Mother Africa. He did not say, I stopped being a mestizo. He did not stop saying, I stopped being a revolutionary. But here was a man who understood historical and dialectical materialism and could embrace the multiple realities in a way that, quote unquote, those Marxist Leninists could only see the abstraction of class uh, and labor and not see the sociology of that. So that's why I have been, um, I guess, an insistent voice in my own defense, if you will. Well, I think what one of the biggest contributions that this series has done is look at the multidimensional analysis of race and class as a, as a mode of exploitation for the enemy, but also as a mode of resistance for the people. 
And so I know that when we were talking about and conceptualizing and framing um, what the new world coming would be, um, you brought up W.E.B. Du Bois quote on the issue of color line, which is a quote that has been used extensively, but also misinterpreted. Yes. And so I think it's important for us to, you know, coming into the reflection of what this series has been to hear from you. You know, what did W.E.B. Du Bois meant when he talked about the color line? And what does this mean to us in the struggle against capitalism, against imperialism? Um, for the enemy also, what does it mean for them? But also, what does it mean for us who, who struggle? Well, you know, when Du Bois wrote uh, The Soul of Black Folk in 1903 and where he said the color line would be this is the major problem of the 20th century, um, he took up the class issue in some very interesting personal ways. You know, this Harvard-trained first black man, you get a PhD from Harvard, um, talking about his Dutch background and, and, and his upper-class uh, Massachusetts background and all. But he says, be clear here, at least you be confused. I am bone and bone and bone of bone and flesh of flesh of those behind the veil. These masses of sort of feudal like mm -hmm. black folk, mm -hmm. that's where his class suicide, that's where his, his own agency says, these are the people that I'm related to. And then over the course of the years, he ends up being joining the communist party. But 50 years later, after he writes his book in 1903, He's asked about doing a new preference. And for people who may see this uh, exchange that we're having, uh, look at Matali Review preface uh, to, the, um, to the 50th anniversary edition of The Souls of Black Folk, where Du Bois was asked if he would write, uh, consider rewriting the book. And he said, no, I'm going to leave it as a monument to my thinking. This little short guy who had a huge <laughs> mind and a huge self-sensibility as a, as, a, as a monument to my thinking. But he did write a new preface. And uh, one, he said he regretted that he did not know about uh, the work of Freud and the cake of custom and the psychological issues. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that while he had studied Marxism in Germany, he realized that his professors had not taken him deep enough. But it is the third point that he makes. He says, I still believe today that the color line is A. He didn't say the question. Mm -hmm. But this is where he opens up the class dialectic, uh, the linkage. He says, but I've come to understand that there's something behind it that both motivates racism and obscures it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that is that a few people, a minority of people are willing to live in luxury at the great expense of fellow humankind living in misery and disease and like. And that in order to preserve this social relationship, inevitably they will go to war against people of color. You think now, that was not prophecy. This mm -hmm. is social science analysis. This may be the greatest social scientist in the United States of the 20th century. He is now recognized as the quote-unquote father of U.S. sociology. He's making a social science analysis, a power analysis about class. And then when we look at 21st century wars, race is also a synonym, a metaphor uh, for civilizational issues like Islam. Um, where, where are the wars going on? Who are the, of course, there are European people who suffer from wars, but characteristically, a miseration is going on where you have large concentrations of non-European people. And so um, when he was talking about the New World, uh, he saw the New World coming from 1903 in the anti-colonial movement. These Pan-African Congresses were not just of Black folk. 
You had Indonesian communists. Mm-hmm. You had Indian communists. You had Cuban mm-hmm. uh, trade union communists there. And um, then you look at someone like Bernie Johnson Reagan, who does not draw her new world coming from W.E.B. Du Bois. She draws it from her own personal experience as someone coming from the Black Belt South who is looking at the Vietnamese and seeing the intersection between what the Vietnamese are fighting for for their humanity with what Black people in the U.S. were fighting for and their humanity. So that provides a sort of context for my own developmental thinking. And um, the implications today are, I would say, very much uh, the same. When we look at a place like Brazil, um, over 100 million people, the great majority of whom look like us, the miseration factor is now there are poor white people, dirt poor white people in Brazil. Lula is an example, but Lula got, he understands that dialectic. He goes before the great capitalists of the, the World Economic Forum, Davos, and he says, you white men, and these, those white men are looking at this little white guy. But Lula is speaking about a deeper sense of humanity that he understands a racialized intersection between class and race, and that he identifies, he's not running away from being white skin, but he's running to where is the source of a potential future new world coming. So that construct of racialized capitalism, which is now we emerging, not as a singular, but as a transversal node of analysis is very important. So we have these very important progressive developments in Cuba, where despite the eras of the Communist Party and its sort of ultra-nationalist perspective, todos nosotros somos cubanos, no hay, no existe, afro-cubanos, no existe, esas distinciones, these distinctions did exist. Now you've got Diaz-Canal leading, yeah. uh, leading. Yeah. his presidential commission is not something that he's appointed a group of people and say, oh, report to me every mm-hmm. quarter. No, he convenes that. Mm-hmm. You know, he sat out with people like the latest Saban Morales. What is your view? Uh, what's going on in tourism? What's happening with police and discrimination? That is a very refreshing honesty in which Cubans in the midst of this economic warfare and this regime change effort against not, not just the government, but, but, but against all of the people in Cuba are suffering as a result of that. He leads a discussion about racism because he understands something that a historical materialist analysis in terms of Marx and Lenin help us to understand that the fundamental contradiction is internal. Uh, yes, imperialism is killing Cuba, but as Raul Castro said, if you remove this economic war blockade against us tomorrow, which is killing us, it may be our own internal errors and feelings in the context of our extraordinary self-determination that will decide what this revolution is about. Those are the narratives that don't necessarily end up in theoretical formulations, but they are underpinned by these concentrated theoretical, uh, th- th- theoretical formulations. So that this racialized issue of class, you know, we all were trained that uh, you cannot get rid of racism under capitalism, it will take socialism. Well, now we have, in my view, perhaps the world's leading socialist project perhaps since the Russian Revolution would be my own individual analysis of this, others I'm sure would debate this, is 
standing forth and saying, we still have some expressions of that that are not just legacy mm -hmm. expressions. Remittances is a contemporary issue. Who left, whether they are intentional or racist or not, what remittances comes back? How does it impact the society? So it is very refreshing to see what the Cubans are doing, of opening up the self-reflection, the self-criticism. And as Diaz Canal said, creatively building the new world, not just defensively standing up against mm -hmm. imperialism. So these are narratives I draw from um, these experiences and particularly from the Cuban experiences as I would understand it. No, well, um, and this is going back to like the perceiving of the color line, not as a, but the aspect. Um, and there's a question related to a phenomenon that we've seen develop in the United States that has been globalized, which is the question of identity politics, mm -hmm. right? Um, can you share a little bit more about the history of identity politics and also how it has been utilized and how it has impacted movements? Um, I think it's something that we are struggling with um, as a society, as people who are organizing around issues of capitalism, imperialism, um, and local struggles, mm -hmm. like this question of identity politics have, has become a thing mm -hmm. for us. So I, I'd like for you to share a little bit more on that. Well, you know, a working class outlook is identity politics. It's identified with the working class. Mm -hmm. The limitations of that characteristic truth vis-a-vis -vis labor, mm -hmm. uh, uh, capital, is that that working class is expressed in real women and men, mm -hmm. real gay and quote-unquote straight people real racialized people. The abstraction of class, the way that it is often used, obscures what is very natural in human society. People live on the river. People live on the ocean. People live in the mountains. They have plural ways of knowing and doing that are developed from those material circumstances in the context of their common identity as a nation. And many Marxists have failed to do that kind of empirical analysis and then to draw conclusions from it. And so that it leads to ideology becoming politicized rather than ideology and forming the messiness of politics. The struggle over governance power, as I would concentrate the definition of politics, how to govern where we want to go in the visions of our own life, has plural expressions. So that, of course, what identity politics produces is on the class in the point of view of the working class is that if you're not a part of the working class, then you don't really count in some quarters of working class development. What it does with the questions of race or gender is you get a anti-male perspective and some of the struggles historically against male oppression. But then you get other threads that are more, to use a term that my comrade here likes, an ecumenical expression <laughs> that understands that there are multiple expressions of class op oppression. Even within capital, the struggle in bourgeois democracy for non-European males to become big-time capitalists means that they suffer racial oppression. Clarence Thomas, this right-wing, black, fascist, uh, Supreme Court justice, faced racism. Um, he has a narrow point of view that relates to capital. I hold in common with him the struggle against racism, but I don't hold in common mm -hmm. with him where we go with that. So that 
I think we have to analyze what is the material basis for these multiple expressions of identities and then help people understand what is the systemic complex out of which it comes rather than the narrow identity sort of bipolar identities that it's A or, or it's B, you're either white or you're not white. It's not that simple. Uh, Pan-Africanism, there are many people who come under the rubric of Pan-Africanism, but Pan-Africanism has a left-wing ideological history, but it also has a bourgeois history. The Organization of African Unity, the African Union, uh, wants the diaspora to come in and help the capitalist development of the continent of Africa. And they do it under the, the, under the notion of Pan-Africanism of the diaspora. That is not the Pan-Africanism of Emil Kyle Cabral, uh, of Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Julius Nyeri, who were joined from these African socialist perspectives, not unlike the Cubans. The Cubans says in the first instance, the Cuban revolution is informed by Marti, not in the first instance by Marx or Lenin, but we use Marx and Lenin to help amplify that. Hugo Chavez says the, the, the Bolivarian revolution is drawn in the first instance from Bolivar, not Marx and Lenin, but we need the tools of Marx and Lenin to understand the capitalist milieu in which we work. Then we go back and we look at Nieri, uh, Ujamaa, Fraternity, or we look at Francia Marquez. And what I think is basically a social democracy government in Colombia, very important, particularly in the context of Colombia, in which she's using the framework of Ubuntu. Uh, I am because you are. These are deep humanistic issues that can inform working class struggles, and they come out of the particularization of race or gender, uh, and they're not abstractions. So we do have to isolate narrow nationalism, mm -hmm. um, exclusive uh, identities uh, of feminism, uh, but we have to recognize that there's a material basis for them to develop mm -hmm. and then challenge people not how to give up their racialized identity, but how to embrace it. I had the wife of a Cuban ambassador some years ago in Washington, D.C. call me and say to me, and we were very close. James, we don't use the word Afro-Cuban. I'm saying my sister, Afro-Cuba de Matanzas. I could give you <laughs> maybe a thousand references internal to, to, uh, to Cuba talking about this. Arsenio Rodriguez, yo no soy Rodriguez. I am from Mozambique. I'm da, da, da. This blind working class musical genius doing a social analysis of what is going on. The people are not stupid in their expressions. We are limited when we don't have a systemic approach. Those of us who see ourselves as a conscious element, and I think there's a limited but useful uh, uh, framework for the notion of the conscious element, but it has to be respectful of the sectoral expressions that come forth. And to help those ex challenge them to see if they may broaden, not challenge them to disappear. And so I think many Marxist Leninists of my generation and of yours uh, have challenged identity politics and put put it down rather than recognize what is what are the historical motive factors for people that they don't people don't just spontaneously wake up and saying um, I'm an African or I'm a black or I'm gay or what have you. There are historical factors in contemporary expression. And how we help them to understand that in the matrix of overall development is, is sort of how I look at the identity issues. And yes, I stand against exclusivism. I, these narrow nationalists or these romantic nationalists who get up and say, well, I'm an African. 53 countries, over a thousand languages, mm -hmm. different social relationships between men and women, a history of what we call lesbianism in certain traditional societies in Africa. Uh, men being house servants in certain, 
which African are you? That kind of abstraction is not useful. So challenging them to come back to have an identity, but to understand it in the contemporary power relationship, which are fundamentally mm -hmm. about working people and those others who control the means of production, meaning they control our health care, our food circumstance, the quality of our air, uh, our movement. Um, and there will be multiple points of expression against that, but how we help those expressions understand what the motive force was. It's how I look at the issue of identity politics. So I embraced progressive identity politics. I embraced revolutionary identity politics. I criticized narrow, exclusive, or romanticized abstractions of, of identity, including I'm a Marxist, I'm a Leninist. Um, uh, what does that really mean if you don't set it in real-time circumstances, that's, right. uh, that's when we find out where the, the rubber really meets the road. I think that one of the things that we acknowledge is the need for like intergenerational conversations that have been intentionally broken by the system yeah. and by many other yeah. factors. Um, and so we acknowledge that there's like a continuation, that there's a lineage, and there are conver many conversations to be had in order to be able to advance um, the work of the working class, black and brown folks, um, people who have been historically marginalized. And so I think your contributions historically have meant um, much to that agenda. And we're very proud and honored to call you our comrade, to have had moments of you in the cafe, sharing with the multitude of young people that we have and that come into the space. Um, many of the stories that are of struggle that are of political organization and that are about identifying our lineage. Thank you, James, for this insightful conversation. I think it's been a synthesis, many of the conversations we've had in the past, and that we hope we continue to have with you about where do we, where do we go? You've talked about in reference to Vincent, that river, that conscious stream of struggle that we carry forward. Thank you for bringing that to us today. And thank you. I love the metaphor and I'm glad to step in the stream of your generation. Thank you so much for tuning in for this interview with James Early and Manolo de los Santos and Claudia de la Cruz, co-executive directors of the People's Forum. For this final interview, James Early became the interviewee. He discussed growing up in segregated rural Florida, his political development, and the historical currents and people that guided his work. James has been a long-term partner to socialist projects and Afro-descendant movements across the world, and he reflects on the debates and discussions he had with people in Cuba, Venezuela, Ghana, and here in the United States that shaped his political analysis, but more importantly, his understanding of humanity and what drives people to struggle. We thank you for joining us through this entire series, and we hope you take the ideas and histories of each interview into your communities and organizations to discuss and debate and multiply knowledge that James and each of our guests have provided. Check out Political Education, the peoplesforum.org to study relevant concepts, figures, and readings for this conversation 
and all other episodes of New World coming. Thank you. Where you gonna be standing when it comes?